now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning layer ones to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you can visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I'm here at the office actually recording, and I'm thrilled to have on John from SuperAir. John, how's it going? Going great, Tom. Thanks for having me on. John, I think my background beats your background. I'm not going to lie. I got a painting. You just have all white. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, it's actually a conceptual piece of art. It's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> I love that. Well, John, I think a lot of people know what SuperAir is, but for those who don't, Give us a quick 30-second intro before I ask you to tell me your life story, just so people have some context. Yeah, absolutely. So SuperAir is a marketplace and social network uh, built around digital art. And the elevator pitch I often give people is like, if you think Instagram meets uh, Christie's. I like that, man. And and tell us a bit about yourself. How'd you get started in crypto? I think you have quite the history here. Yeah, so it was certainly a meandering path. I had after college, I moved to New York and was working in advertising, uh, just doing creative tech stuff. So building websites, building apps, um, also doing some digital art. So I was like into processing and open frameworks, some of these kind of like creative programming languages. And I discovered the New York Bitcoin meetup, which uh, was very exciting. Kind of just started. You know, slowly falling down the rabbit hole, did the whole like, you know, read the white paper thing. Um, and hit yeah, all the bases. Exactly. Hit all the bases. It was fun. And it was like, it was right before, it was like right before a counterparty launch. So, like, you know, people were starting to experiment with like smart contract like things. So, it was, you know, an exciting time. Saw. You know, like through that meetup, learned about Ethereum, which I was uh, very skeptical about at first. Um, but then after the after the network launched, quickly changed my mind and decided I was totally wrong. And it was pretty incredible. And <laughs> actually went to go work with uh, Consensus out in Bushwick. Awesome. So what what year was this that you found the Bitcoin meetup? Was that 16 or 17 or was that? No, I think it was like. I was like the winter of 2013 or something. So oh, baby, I was way off there. Sorry, I, I missed the counterfactual reference. Uh, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, I like you know was just you know living in a tiny apartment with no money after college. So 
Um, didn't really change my life other than that. I met a bunch of really cool people, but, um, I like that. Did you ever think that, you know, I mean, you were here early. Did you ever think that what we have now would ever be built on Bitcoin back then? Like what were you thinking back then when you first found Bitcoin? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like one of the popular memes back then was that like, there were all these other, you know, it's like name coin and like prime coin and all these other random chains. And one of the popular narratives is like people experiment and then anything that's actually working will kind of just get like absorbed into Bitcoin, which, you know, obviously hasn't, it didn't happen. And I mean, people were talking to like counterparty was super interesting. Like I thought counterparty was awesome. Um, I mean, it, it still is awesome. Like the idea is super interesting. Like, putting data into Bitcoin transactions. So kind of like building this, like, I don't know, higher order layer of things. It was pretty cool. I mean, like, I think Counterparty launched like early 2014 and like it worked. You could like mint other types of things. There was like some gaming stuff happening with like spells of Genesis. And, but yeah, I, uh, so I wasn't sure I was, you know, I was kind of just like very excited about it. Like all the things it was like, there's so, you know, all these new toys to play with, but yeah, it's been amazing to see kind of the growth in the Ethereum ecosystem. I think it's like interesting how it's grown or like, you know, Bitcoin's got the super hard money narrative, which, you know, I'm a big fan, love Bitcoin, uh, but also love, you know, for, for us, it was like, and like me personally having like experimented with like building things on top of Bitcoin, like with solidity, it was like, Oh shit. Well, this is way easier. Like, you know, I could get behind this. So yeah, it's, it's been interesting like to that. see it evolve. No, it's cool. It's cool that you have, like you have the history of being early in Bitcoin yet you're building something that's fully taking advantage of ETH. And I'm not going to make this in, you know, this first, that podcast, but I always like to shout out people who, are able to make that mental leap? Cause I feel like a lot of people kind of get stuck in one world or the other. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I definitely was a little stuck. And then as soon as I started playing around with Ethereum, it was just like, well, this is clearly amazing. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to not be a part of this. Yeah. No, I'm with you. What most people that don't like it have never used it. So that's usually the, the yeah. barrier, but 100%. John, I mean, your whole business is built on NFTs, I think. Right. And, and, an insane amount of creativity and art. And it's something that's unlike DeFi because, you know, DeFi is amazing, but it's hard. And, you know, it, it takes a while to get up to speed, but NFTs are just super simple. People get it as a huge target base. Tell us a bit about Super Rare. Yeah. So, you know, like having, you know, been in the space and built, you know, side projects and been experimenting. For me, I was really excited about, you know, with Web3, this idea of, you know, a value transfer, like protocol, that's like part of the internet. So it's like, how do you make money a native part of all these different apps that we use, you know, we're all addicted to them, we're like on Twitter all the time, we're on Telegram all the time. And it's like, how do you add this money layer, right? That was like the big story, or at least for me, it was like, wow, there isn't really a value transfer layer or value transfer protocol on the internet. Like, how's that going to change things? And so in thinking about that, like the first just sort of like hints of super rare were like, okay, well, what would it look like if, you know, you built a social network that didn't have an advertising business model, right? Like, you know, my incentive isn't to try to like keep you trapped in the app. It's like, you know, more of a utility, you know, could it be, and then like with the advent of NFTs and like seeing the standard, it was like, oh, what if it could be like, you know, a marketplace business model where, you know, that's, it's like totally peer to peer. Like this is, I I thought that the idea was pretty interesting. And then with my background in processing and having like, you know, been interested in digital art for so long. It was kind of just this aha moment of it was actually at DevCon 3 in Cancun, like Ether Delta was like the highest volume. And it was like right before CryptoKitties took off. Um, Man, what a throwback. If I remember correctly. <laughs> and I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like the best app that we've built on Ethereum is like just a really slow trading app. Um, it, like, no no shade being thrown on ether delta like it was awesome what they had built but i was just like 
ah, this isn't really what I showed up for. Like finance is cool, but it isn't really what was like speaking to me. It was like, how do you get other consumer apps using this technology? And it was kind of slowly, it was like, oh, what if you had a DEX, but instead of for, you know, trading fungible assets and financial instruments, like what if it was for art or photos or something like this? And so that was really kind of like the, the origin. And then, yeah, just like being in art, I was like, oh shit, this is amazing. Like all the processing sketches I was just creating for myself could have been, you know, try to monetize and yeah, just kind of just grew from there. I guess there's a timeline like disconnect for me here, right? Cause like you wanted to do something creative, which became super rare, but at the time NFTs really weren't a thing. I mean, what were you thinking back then? Like this would appeal to like, you know, people take photographs or yeah, I guess I'm just like, like, did you have to wait for NFTs to become a reality to do your vision or was there something there before that? Yeah. So I, it was kind of, it was just like ruminations in my mind. And then when I saw like, you know, the Dapper Lab team, like pioneering the standard around and like, you know, unique individual objects, I was like, oh, this is going to be huge. Like a lot of the smart contract stuff I had done before involved some kind of unique identifier, in, you know, in some Solidity smart contract. And it was, I just felt like, you know, all the other parts of the internet have been standards based. The ICO boom was a simple standard that everybody adopted. And, you know, we saw how much like wealth was generated there. So I was like, okay, unique identifiers are like a native part of the internet. Every tweet has a unique ID. Every video has a unique ID. Like it's literally a core feature. And so if digital objects with unique identifiers could also be bearer instruments, like that's crazy. You know, like how you know, like how do you even think about like what this market's going to look like? So it was just like, oh, I have to just go start building stuff because this is going to be amazing. And then the thing that was most interesting to me personally was uh, you know, digital art. So the cool thing about your story is, and I mentioned this to start, is like you had incredible foresight at those you know early Bitcoin days to to adopt Ethereum at the ether delta days to want to do something creative non-finance i i know we're kind of deep into nfts right now and it's all the rage but you know what's your foresight on what's important here and where we're going right like do we stop at artwork like what gets you really excited about nfts i mean you could talk about different versions different types uh, different experiences like you know what gets you going now but also you know what do you want to see because you're somebody who could see into the future a bit and you already have yeah, I think, I mean, I think what, you know, collecting has been very much part of the human experience and it hasn't really gone through this digitization process yet, you know, where it's like video did, music did, so, so many of these kind of like fun parts of, you know, like collecting is just a fun part about being a human or, you know, lots of people think so. And it's kind of tied into the digital identity thing. Like, I think that's part of why the avatar stuff is like hit so fast and hard. You know, it was like, it's just, no matter if people like, you want to make fun of Visa for collecting a crypto punk, like they've probably never bought a crypto punk and like made it their profile picture. Cause it's extremely fucking fun. Like, and that's just why this, you know, it's like the collecting in this sense is so much more like, you know, if I have, like, I have a surfboard collection, and I have a small art collection. And the only people who ever see it are people who've been to my house. But like, if you make your new crypto punk, your Twitter profile, it's like, on blast to the whole world. And so it's, you know, fun and exciting in a different way. And so I think that's like, the tip of the iceberg. And just thinking about like, you know, AR fashion, where like, you know, it kind of seems silly, but like, people just love face filters, right? Like this stuff is clearly not going away. It's like people are obsessed with it. And so I think that like having this, like the digital identity also kind of becoming more part of your physical identity in a weird way is, uh, is kind of where this is, you know, like I think that's where we're going where like people will have interesting weird AR clothes that they're wearing for the day or, you know, things like that. So I don't know. That's kind of yeah. like where my head goes, where it's like, 
for me, the metaverse isn't necessarily just ready player one. Like it's almost a spectrum of like, do you want to just be playing with AR and you're kind of like on the edge of the metaverse or do you like go all the way deep and like now you're completely immersed? Um, But they're not like, I think it's like a continuum versus like a place that you go to. No, that that's fair. It's good color. I mean, I guess one of the side effects of having such a creative explosion of NFTs is I guess all the extra that piles up, right? Like, you know, we have rocks selling for 1.3 million, but we also have, you know, a graveyard of, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of NFTs that people will probably never touch that may not have much value, right? Like in your mind, how do we, you know, like as that piles up, how do we have that fight for quality while maintaining creativity, right? Like we don't want to just stay on punks. We want creativity, but we also don't want billions of worthless NFTs. How do you keep the creativity going without kind of, you know, just piling on this debt of never ending (laughs) NFTs? Yeah, well, I do sort of think there is, there's just going to be more and more NFTs. Like early on, we were like, well, if this actually happens, you know, there's going to be like billions, if not trillions of these things. And I mean, that was kind of part of the decision to be, you know, like have curation, like be part of the platform. It's like, if we are in a world where there's just like, a huge, huge number, like an unfathomable number. You know, it's like how many YouTube videos are there? Like, I don't know. I haven't seen most of them. I uh, probably don't want to either. And so like thinking about the curation layer, I think that's going to become more and more like the search and discover where it's like, you know, Google's page rank sort of decides the quality of websites. And so, you know, and I don't think you necessarily have an algorithm curating collectibles and art, but like that was part of like, you know, part of the inspiration and like motivation with the rare token is like, how do you try to curate at scale is, you know, curating on a small scale is hard on a large scale is even harder. And so this is kind of like, you know, us taking that direction. So it's like, all right, we think it's possible to have, you know, to crowdsource curation. Um, you just have to do it kind of slowly and thoughtfully. No, that's a good point. I, I definitely want to get into the rare token, but I guess before we do that, I mean, tell us, you know, for those who are just listening on audio and, and can't go to superrare.com, tell us the differences about the experience with super rare. Like when you come to super rare, what sets it apart versus going to OpenSea or going to Rarible or, or going to XYZ Exchange? Like what's the experience you're trying to get to here? And, and what do people take away from that? Yeah, so we, and really early on, felt like there's a bunch of interesting consumer tech, like patterns that you can draw from for like, you know, how to, you know, scrolling feeds and things like this. Um, And so it was like, well, you don't want to like throw it all out. It's not all bad. But at the same time, our goal with Super Rare wasn't, you know, like I said, it's not ad driven so we don't necessarily it's not like oh our goal is to like kind of like trap you here it's like to help people find you know find beauty appreciate it want to go chat with an artist on twitter right like that's like you know that's part of what we want to happen and so it's really like trying to make the ui minimal make it easy to find uh, but also easy to kind of like pause and appreciate art so yeah i think that's one area where like we put a lot of thought into like, how does the art look like? What is the experience going to be like for another artist or a collector when they see a piece of art, you know, you almost want like a negative design, right? Like if you think about like, we don't, we almost want our website to like, you don't even know it's there. All you as the user notice is the art you're looking at and like who created it and like have this rich, you know, art consumption experience. Um, but it's not like us trying to make our brand cool. So it's kind of like, how do you have a brand and like a user experience that supports the art? You know, obviously we do want to have a brand, but like, you know, kind of wanting it to be understated. And so I think that's probably the main difference from like different aggregator marketplaces is like really highlighting the art. And then for like compared to some of the other competitors, it's like really trying to, almost have like a museum or like gallery like experience where like really what you notice is the art 
sure that you know the app's easy to use, but it's kind of behind the scenes. The negative design idea you mentioned is is actually really interesting. It, it's kind of funny because everyone wants to have this very unique, powerful out and center front brand, but in your sense, like you want to showcase all of these artists. It's a cool idea. Is that something that you guys had from the get go, or is it something you kind of figured out over time? Early on, we so one of my buddies who I worked with in advertising, his name's Josh. He, he's uh, he was actually like he's like very much like a no coiner, but like I convinced him to like set up MetaMask and like he's got some art on Super Rare. So he was like early on helping us think through what the experience should be like, and you know we kind of settled on this like. You know, Giphy is amazing as like, I don't know if you've like been to the site, like searching through content there is interesting, but like, it's also extremely overwhelming. There's like way too much stuff. And it was like, what would it be like if you like did a mashup where it was like a fine art museum, but like crossed with Giphy, like what does that end up with? And so that was kind of the, the inspiration. Um, so it's like, yeah, you because know, like galleries often are like they're very understated. It's like trying to put the art forward, but um, pretty early on, that was like what we settled on. That's awesome. No, it's it's a really cool feature. One of the things I want to talk a lot with you about is curation. I'd first love to start with you know why you think it's important and, and how your token plays into it. But I guess down the line a bit, I want to talk a bit about you know how do we even figure out who the best curators are, right? Like, I mean, today we leave it to the market, right? Like. You know, the market decides for various reasons, you know, beyond the scope of this pod that punks are super valuable, right? And I agree. Um, but, you know, how do we decide that an NFT is valuable when it's, you know, different groups and different use cases valuing them in different ways? It's a huge coordination problem, but we'd love to dive in here and get your take. Yeah, it's super interesting. You know, it's, I think there's, you know, I, if you choose a metric, maybe you can then decide whether or not, you know, curation is is good or valuable. With art, I think it's, you know, it's like, it's definitely a little bit harder to, you know, like, what is good curation? Like, often it's like the curation that produces things you like. It would be like, we each have our own definition of like, what is good curation? And, you know, so I think with and like Super 1.0, like our team did a pretty good job of curating art. You know, our you know, sort of like goal was to have support emer- emerging artists, support well-known artists that helps elevate like the whole ecosystem and like kind of having like a broad cross section. But, you know, still are limited by the amount of applications we can review, our own you know personal preferences and tastes in art. And you know, thinking through like, okay, what's the, you know, like the big, like, what do we want super to be, right? If this is the place where people come to discover and collect, you know, the best, most interesting internet art, you need a much sort of wide, like wider range or more diverse group of voices curating what you know they each individually think is interesting. And so then it was like, okay, well, like, how do we, you know, sort of like a rabbit hole where you're like peeling back layers of like things you want. And so ultimately. How the hell do we do this? Yeah. How the <laughs> hell do we do this? But, yep. you know, we were lucky in that there was this kind of like emergent pattern on Super Air where we would talk to, you know, people who did feel like they had, you know, good curatorial tastes, had, you know, either a mission they were interested in or like, you know, like often curation has like some sort of theme. And we would work with these, you know, they were gallerists, they were just, you know, curators. Yeah, you know, early on, there was, there was a, uh, this guy, Mark, who runs a, uh, it's kind of like an art collective called Feltzine, who I was like, super stoked, because I was a big Feltzine fan. And he's like, you know, we connected, which I was like, trying not to be too much of a fanboy, because like, for a long time, I was like, oh, this stuff is so cool. But it was like, oh, hey, I have like, you know, the type of art I like to curate. I want to have like a voice within super rare. And so we worked together and like, it was this emergent pattern where people would like want to curate their own, their own artists, their own, this like a select group of art, which wasn't necessarily in line with like our person, like our internal teams, like curatorial tastes, but it's super interesting, right? It's like this conversation back and forth, like, you know, somebody you know, one of the viewers or listeners might love the painting behind you. Somebody else might think like, 
oh, this is terrible or, you know, for whatever reason, but like people have these opinions. And so that's kind of the, like the idea with these super spaces was like, well, if we could take this emergent pattern and like extrapolate it into a product feature where, you know, if you don't like the style of curation that a space is doing, then don't go look at the art. Like it's pretty straightforward, but it allows for, you know, people to kind of like find their tribe and like find, you know, what they're into. and. I mean, I think ultimately, like the first iteration will probably be relatively, you know, relatively limited feature set. But like long term, I could see these spaces sort of like being their own little DAOs or something like that um, with, you know, members who are, you know, on the collecting side, on like the art producing side. Um, but uh, no, no yeah. that's a great color. And, and where exactly does like the curation take place? Is it is it curating the artists on super or is it curating the artwork that's displayed? Like where does the curation play into this? Yeah. So with rare, basically the token holders are going to be voting on, like we're going to have like biweekly spaces are going to be added. And so people will get to vote on what's the next space. So, you know, we looked at, you know, all the different, most of the, sort of like patterns we were looking at were more you know like DeFi kind of like governance patterns but just trying to like draw inspiration from those and then so like you know we'll have essentially these proposals people will get to put together um they'll get voted on and we'll kind of have this rolling bi-weekly uh new we're calling it the space race uh you know inspired by a mirror like the right race yeah um and so then from there the operator currently calling them operators, the space operators, they'll get to curate however they want. So they might add artists to their space who can mint as much as they want, or maybe it would just be, you know, select pieces of art that get, you know, produced in a space. Still very experimental, but that's the idea is that like, they'll be free to kind of curate however they want. And then in addition to that, we'll still have kind of independent artists representing themselves on Super Rare. Another part of the motivation with the space, like having the spaces is, you know, our team's limited in the amount of promotion we can do, right? If we sent 50 emails about auctions during the week, you know, none of the auctions get very much traffic. Whereas like if people start following specific spaces, artists can get better sort of like promotion out of the space. And so kind of just like it allows us to scale up, you know, pretty much everything that's working uh, with Super Rare. No, that, that's helpful. And and a super dumb question for you though, but like, what's the process for figuring out like what goes on the super rare homepage, right? Like, cause I understand that like, the rare token holders can approve spaces and artists, but like, you know, let's say you, you know, a year from now you have a zillion spaces on here. Um, and I'm probably confusing a couple of things, but yeah. What, what makes it to the homepage? Yeah. So now this is a great question. Uh, and it's still right now it's just, uh, currently, our team is kind of curating what goes on to the homepage. And, you know, if you're logged in, I guess, then you're just kind of seeing the feed that you've curated for yourself. But I, I think it's a great question and like still very experimental. You know, some of the things we've talked about, like could, you could also use the token and have kind of like, you know, like Harburger tax style featured placements, right? Like if you think about marketplaces and, you know, social platforms like there often are these like promoted or featured spots so that was yeah i think that's where it gets really fun if you think about the token economics like you know maybe you're burning rare to put a piece of art or feature an artist or you know feature an exhibition or something and like playing with that like you know i like the harburger tax model because it's pretty simple but uh although i never i'm sure if i'm saying it correctly like no 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 it's fine it's it's kind of cool to think about though, because I mean, I've never like, maybe there's a traditional comparison here. I'm not sure if there is, but in the traditional world, is there anywhere where artists now own part of the protocol that they're selling on? I, I don't think there is. Right. I mean, other than like buying stock in eBay and trying to sell. Yeah, I, I don't really think so. And so, yeah, no, I, th- I think we're, you know, pioneering in the sense that like, there's not a lot of prior art for you know, like consumer apps and especially yeah, for like these creator platforms, like if you, th- you like Instagram, it's like, you're just creating content for free. Like maybe you're hoping someone clicks on your link tree and like buys a t-shirt from your store, but that's like 
it's very abstracted from like the act of like, you know, creating the Instagram post. And so what I love about NFTs is like the content is the art. Like that's the thing, you know, a patron can, you know, go and collect. So it's a, it's a much more direct sort of like economic system in my mind. No, I'm with you there. And I guess the other thing that plays into this, and I'm going to botch the tweet, it's from the, you know, mega old punk owner who's super well known, but basically he he was comparing like quality to quantity here and on creators dropping NFTs. And a really good point and obvious hindsight that he brought up was, you know, if you drop something super valuable, like the artist will earn so much on royalties from that on secondary sales. How do you think through royalties for artists on Super Rare and other platforms? Because it, it seems like it's extremely important, like for the sustainability of the artists. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, I think initially, like the like royalties. Well, number one, we were like, well, it's just so easy with Solidity. Like we'd be like it would be ridiculous not to try like building it into the smart contract, right? Like this is actually the point of programmable money is you can, you know, program it to, to do different things. And I think it really makes for a much more, I don't know, sustainable or, you know, fair, like market, right? Like in, in any, like almost anywhere where there are secondary markets, whether it's like the original creators, whether it's like, you know, concert, tickets or you know swag for like you know baseball swag or whatever it happens to be like they're kind of like cut out and it, with art specifically you know it's like this sort of like you know it's like the artists are poor until they die and then their art like skyrockets in value and it's also kind of like socially shunned to resell art in the art world and i think a big part of it though is like if you buy a painting from someone for 10 grand and then go flip it at the auction house for $2 million and the artist, you know, like doesn't see any of that. Like that's uh, you know, you can argue whether or not it's fair, but it certainly sucks for the artist. They're like, fuck, I did the actual work here. Like you just went and resold something. And so part of the idea is like, well, could you make this? It's clearly a thing people like to do. Like people love to resell stuff. People love this act of buying and selling. And so what if you make it a feature as opposed to this like, uh, kind of like dirty thing that like happens, but you know, it's like, you're not supposed to do it, but everybody still does it anyway. And so we're like, oh, this is so weird. Like, you know, it's like you're, it's happening over there. Everyone can see it, but like, no one's going to do anything about it. And we're like, well, what if you make it like a core feature? So it's like the artist is fucking stoked when the collector also makes more money. Like this is, you know, we can make this more win-win. And so I think... I mean, it makes for a more interesting art market too, right? It's like, you know, we want it to not only be like a financial game, obviously, but at the same time, like the record breaking sale, you know, like how did NFTs really jump into the mainstream? There was the Beeple sale at Christie's. Like it was like, yes, there was some discussion about the, you know, some people like the art, some people didn't, but what you saw everywhere was like, digital you know jpeg sells for 70 million dollars like that was just all over the place <laughs> and so um pretending like it's not an important part of the ecosystem i think is silly no I'm, I'm with you there and you know one of the other cool things you guys have built and i haven't spent a lot of time on is your sovereign smart contracts not to like totally shift gears on you but can you kind of dive into like the gravity of that yeah absolutely so we you know early on there are sort of these like platforms, you know, sprouted up. There was not a lot of options for like minting NFTs. And the easiest thing to do is have one NFT smart contract that all the artists were minting into. And, you know, we were like, and then it ends up, it's sort of like branded as like a super rare NFT, uh, which is sort of silly because if you think about it, it's like the artist is who's important. It's like, we facilitated the NFT, but like, you know, it's really about the artist. So having this idea of like artists being, you know, sort of like the most important piece, like it, you know, it's like a core fundamental piece. And so having this idea of the sovereign artist smart contracts is basically smart contracts that the artist totally owns, they're minting in them, they can be, you know, branded with their name, they could have potentially 
custom features, like if there are certain properties that artists want to program into these smart contracts. And ultimately, not limiting for collectors, right? Like if you're, say, XCopy and you've minted on other platforms, collectors still, they want to see the whole body of work. And so it's like, in addition to having, you know, sovereign artist smart contracts that you created on SuperRare, importing, you know, other parts of the collection, I think is a big, uh, you know, part of that story as well. No, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm just trying to think through spaces a bit more like, like, how do you envision like these artists working together, right? Like, is it just one artist, one space? Or do you envision, you know, artists working together on spaces and collaborating and, and making new art? Like, how, how do you see through the collaboration aspect on Super Rare? Yeah, so I think, well, so I kind of think like two ways about it, like with, so I think artists collaborating on a piece of art, you know, they, you could have like N number of artists collaborating on it. But with spaces, I kind of think about them like, you know, like, I don't know, like the clubhouse, like groups or something where it's like, you could see so-and-so is a member of like these different groups. Like I'm kind of imagining it like this, where like, you say Flamingo Dow has a space and you know they're curating art and artists and you could see oh here's all the different artists who have ever created something in the flamingo dao space or the gagosian gallery space or something like that so i'm imagining them it's kind of like like more high level and ways to like sort of like group together almost you know like having a bunch of different artists be you know potentially, you know, that part of many different spaces. No, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, I, I guess the other thing is like, so somebody like Flamingo Dow can curate art for other people, but they can also, they can also obviously share the art that they own, right? Like there is the afterward gallery effect. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, yeah, that's the plan. That's cool. I, what do you think about post-sale, right? Like there's a ton of work that you're doing to incentivize basically the global community to curate artists and artwork. And that's a huge undertaking, but, and that's to get the right artwork in front of the people for a sale. But what happens after that, right? Like how do you curate people's galleries after the fact, right? Like if I spend it, like you're spending so much resources to get the right artwork in front of people, but after the sale, it's kind of like, you know, all right, whatever. Like, how do you make it important afterward? Yeah, no, that's, it's super interesting to think about how, you know, how people actually interact with these things and they can be more, uh, more tactile. You know, one way I think, you know, it's not as exciting as like the, the metaverse is, but really just things as simple as digital display. Like I think, you know, Samsung's got the frame, there's the mural that's pretty popular, right? Like these sort of these art focused frames are getting better and cheaper. And I think there's a big opportunity around the UX with those. So like, you know, like if you think about the collecting experience from like start to finish, it's like you find an artist you like, you find a piece of art you like, you acquire it, and then you can go like show it off on your frame. Like it's still pretty clunky no matter what technology you're using. Like there's not really a seamless experience. You know, a lot of these frames have their own art stores. But I think they haven't like they haven't really figured like totally embraced like the NFT ethos of open standards and open assets. Uh, they're like you know, a little bit stuck in like a Web two business model. And but you know we're actively I think like Samsung's been doing like pretty progressive. Like we've been talking to them a lot about NFTs and how to like you know here's like an ideal state. Like let's work on building something like this together. So I think that's a big part of this, right? I think really having you know, whether it's fine art or collectibles, whatever it is, like people want to show it off and having something as simple as just enabling this on, you know, most people have more than one screen in their house. And so I think it like, I kind of think about it like, you know, you, uh, you wake up, you have some coffee, you like might turn on music and like also decide like, what art you want to have on that day? Like something like that. So I think that's a big part of how this gets us to, the kind of like crazier, more futuristic uh, metaverse stuff. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And when you're thinking through incentives, I guess my concern with curation is always, you know, what, I'm rewarded now, but what about later, right? Like 
if people are curating for super rare, obviously they, they own the rare token, they get the value flow through the increasing the quality and, and transactions on the site, et cetera. But is there any follow through for the curators after the fact? Like, is there any value flow to them down the road for curating what may become something that's extremely important? Like, let's say somebody curates punks early on before they're valuable. Like, do they get some type of outsourced, outsized reputation or reward down the line for that, having that, you know, thought early on? Yeah. So I think it's super, I mean, it's a really good point you bring up. Like, they're very much part of the growth of, you know, potentially a specific artist or a specific artwork. And, you know, not too long ago, we announced like piloting this like collector royalties concept where like, you know, just kind of like playing with, you know, these people are sort of interacting together, adding value to this ecosystem. And so, you know, I also think, you know, curator royalties are like a pretty interesting concept. Um, You know, there's this, uh, you know, it's like the comment on YouTube or whatever is like, saw it first. Yeah, just that like you get the social reputation for you know being the first person to uh, you know I don't know watch a a little pump music video, Um, but at the same time it could be you know extended to sort of like monetary success and then like you know maybe royalties are more sophisticated and like I think the tooling is just getting easier and easier right like this like you could have you know potentially many different parties uh, involved in these royalty transactions. No, the delayed royalties idea is genius. I mean, you know, because people could put a lot of work in to find really valuable pieces. Um, And obviously, you know, by design, it's not the crowd that's going to find that, right? It's going to be smaller people. I really like that idea. It's cool. Yeah. And it's, you know, even just like my own behavior, like on Super Rare is like, if I see someone whose tastes I respect and they start collecting from someone, you're like, oh, that's, you know, like, Maybe I should go get one of those. Um, <laughs> so like having them kind of, you know, like if there is like a mechanic there to incentivize that, like, I think that's great, right? It's like, it's, it makes it easier for people to find art. Um, it makes it easier for them to collect it, which, you know, benefits everybody. Yeah. Now I, so I was chatting with Coley B. He goes by a close friend in the space who, who helps me to understand it. And one of the key points that he brought up during our conversation was, I guess, exactly what you're attempting to solve, right? That, you know, the NFT space, when there's a drop, it's dominated by the projects that get a ton of social media and clout and plug the right people in. But, you know, for the smaller artists, it's obviously extremely hard for them to get eyeball time, right? Do you have any success stories you can share on, you know, how Super Rare helped like the unknown artists, you know, achieve the top? you know, despite all of this, you know, NFT spam per se on Twitter? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, certainly prior to the NFT spam, you know, that's easier to put, you know, like I think a number of artists on Super Air were not, you know, not famous, well-known artists before all of this started. You know, I think uh, Flocious is a great example where, you know, he was selling paintings in his online store for like 300 bucks. And the, now is like probably one of the most well-known also, you know, one of my personal favorites, but like most well-known artists, like, I mean, I don't know in the world, but like certainly in this ecosystem, you know, the like, you know, Flocious is a household name. So I think it's interesting. Like, I think it kind of like what you're saying around the curation, right? It's like finding, it is an interesting matching problem, like matching, collectors and artists at like the right stage where you know like you know ferocious pieces are now currently out of my personal you know price range but like how do i get matched with somebody early on in their career before they have notoriety so yeah it's still i think it's an open question around like what's the best way to go about solving it yeah no i'm with you there and you know not to not to play devil's advocate but i'd love to get your take like you know, people see OpenSea doing like, I think it like 3 billion in volume in like the last week or something, um, just like insane growth. But obviously the experience of an OpenSea is very, very different from super rare. What's your take though on a couple of years out? Like everybody always argues convergence to, you know, winner takes most or winner takes all markets. 
you know, obviously in the real world, it's not totally reality. If you look at department stores, if you look online, it kind of is with Amazon. I, I guess, how are you thinking about maintaining this, you know, incredible experience on curation, you know, in the face of, you know, mass retail using something like OpenSea? Yeah, it's a you know, super valid question. I mean, like, you know, it's interesting in that, like, our infrastructure could support, you know, whatever NFTs, right? It's a conscious decision to have it, you know, be more focused on art. You know, my personal opinion is that eventually it gets kind of vertical, like, you'll see sort of this like unbundling, you know, like people love to talk about unbundling, but like, Oh man, I'm an ex-telco analyst, man. Whatever <laughs> bundling, pre-bundling. Every, it's all yeah, you're bundling, you're unbundling. You're just going, it's a you know, ebb and flow. Yep. Um, but I think like, you know, I imagine the experience for like the specific asset type becomes more and more sophisticated. So, you know, I often think about like virtual land. Like someone will probably build like a very cool like Zillow style, you know, virtual real estate website. And so even though that's like an NFT, you could sell it next to domain names. Um, ultimately, it's hard to kind of like specialize in these like very different verticals. And so I think there will be these sort of like category winners. It's kind of like how I, like in the next five years, I see you know, very category specific platforms. And, you know, obviously, I think Super is going to win the art category. But. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. And no, Super is awesome, man. And and what I mean, the rare tokens new. I mean, it's it's had an incredible launch. The the idea of curation is cool. I mean, what's your take long term? Like, do you like? I guess what do you see as the biggest hurdle for the token? Like, is it? Do you think people are going to understand curation from the get go? Is everything live today? Would love kind of an update there too. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think it's I'm you know clearly very excited about it, right? I think we're an interesting like hybrid of consumer app, but also kind of, you know, there's like this protocol component related to NFTs. Um, so there's, you know, one of the hurdles is just, you know, being early to market there is there's not lots of prior art. So figuring out, right, like, like governance around curation is different than, you know, governing you know, the the maker interest rate, right? That's extremely specific. Whereas like, this is a little bit more broad. So I think it's, you know, there's some challenge challenges in refining that model, but I also think, you know, that's where the opportunity is as well, right? You get that, uh, sort of the, the asymmetry around the risk. And then, I mean, I think another challenge is like, you know, where the crypto crowd totally understands what these tokens are and like what they, you know, what they mean, how to use them. And like, I really see this as a much more, you know, mainstream sort of art, right? Like you don't need to know anything about monetary theory to uh, appreciate art. And so trying, and that's kind of like why we're thinking, you know, having, calling it the space race, you know, we're not calling it like decentralized, you know, DAO governance of, you know, curatorial, right? It's like, how do you make governance a fun product? so you can have high engagement. So I think that's the biggest challenge. Like, I think it's a big opportunity, but it is still something to, uh, you know, to be ironed out. No, I love that. And John, we have like five or 10 minutes left. I'd love to switch gears to you. I want to start with, you know, hardest hurdles to overcome, and then, then we'll go to the best ones that you've overcame. But I guess what was the biggest setback for you that you overcame in Super Rare's history? Like, what was something that just, you know, you woke up one day and you're like, fuck, man, I don't know if I could do this. Like, what was something that was a hard thing that you overcame that people might not know about? That people might not know about. Um, or they might know. Either yeah. one. Either Let's way. see. I mean, just, I think we were extremely early. And so, you know, basically, we did an accelerator program. So, like, had, you know, a little bit of cash for three months and then came out and it was like, middle of crypto winter like complete failure to raise and like we didn't get a single dollar after the accelerator so it's like great this isn't you know really what uh yeah what like, this is what you read about on yeah. fucking tech crunch um yep. so it's like oh, is this is a terrible idea and so had the title ready to go super yeah. rare raises <laughs> <laughs> yeah i already wrote the press release that was like yep. it just sat around collecting dust um 
So that, I mean, that was super challenging. Like we, the three of us, uh, you know, there's three co-founders. It's my brother and our, our cousin, Jonathan. Uh, we had, you know, quit our jobs to dive in. And so it was just it's pretty challenging. Like we were like, you know, doing side projects. So it was a lot of like, all right, well, I'll do this thing from 6 a.m. until 3 p.m. And I'll switch gears. And like, we could do a super stand up at four and like, you know, work until midnight. And so it was like, definitely a challenge. And there were many times where we were just like, oh my God, like, is this worth it? Like, it's, you know, like, <laughs> it's fun and cool, but like, is this just like a really hard hobby that we have? Or like, what's going to happen? Here? On the so, 10th Red Bull, you start arguing whether you should go back to your job yeah, or not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone's like, fuck, I quit my job where you know, I actually got paid. Like, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. And I mean, you started your career in crypto so early, right? I mean, it's, I don't. I know. I keep saying that, but it, it feels like the NFT crowd is a totally new crowd. And you're someone who's been here since 2013 or so. Like it's it's awesome to see you go from you know new you know quote new paradigm to new paradigm kind of. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Is I mean, really early, I was like, ah, like the internet money plus consumer web is going to be super lit. Just don't exactly know what it's going to be like. And I think we're starting to see like, okay, here, this is actually what it's going to be like. Yeah, no, I love that. And I guess any words of caution for those entering the NFT space now, like, you know, I just saw an alert that a board ape just went for 500 ETH. Um, oh my it, it looks sick. Yeah, it's rainbow. It's got a cool robot eye. <laughs> it just looks great. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, what, I guess, what would you caution people who you want to make sure that they authentically stay in the NFT or crypto space, but they also take part. Like, how do you get them to stay, learn the right way? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you know, I don't know. It probably sounds cheesy, but it's like, you know, I, what was fun early on for us is like, you know, no one was making any money and it was like, well, this is just cool. We're like making art, like making friends, like this is awesome. And so I would say for new entrants it's like i think the eye-popping numbers are super exciting it's like great for attention right we're like getting more and more eyeballs on the space but that's uh you know it's not everybody is selling board apes for 500 ETH, right like and so you know i think they're like just get involved with you know, like i don't know like the speculation is one thing, but like find something you're interested in, right? There's a ton of interesting, you know, like from all the crazy shit Axie's doing, right? Like pioneering play to earn to, you know, like the collectibles projects, like, like NFTs are extremely broad. And so if you get involved with something you're truly interested in, it's going to be way more satisfying. I think you'll probably have, um, you know, not giving people investment advice, but like for me personally, when I've been, passionate about things i've had better returns than if you're like just coming in to be like oh sick it's a you know this is a cool new way to like you know diamond hands i'm gonna get rich if you're if that's your mindset you're probably not gonna get rich you're screwed yeah and, yeah. and just the other side of the equation here like what advice would you give to artists right like let's say you're an artist who dreams to be on the front page of super rare like what tips would you give them not to like play the system or anything but just like on how to create the right type of artwork and community to kind of get there. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're probably familiar with Coldy and his work. Like he always, you know, I like his message to younger artists of just being like, you should just think, focus on the art and like the success can come later where like, you know, early on, like all the art on Super Air was selling from like, you know, $5 to you know, maybe $300. For like, so don't necessarily see like try to like start comparing yourself to people who've been around in the space and have notoriety right away, right? Like continue to develop your style, continue to make personal connections. Like I think a big kind of like everything, right? It's like it's at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of humans hanging out doing things. And so if you are making interesting art, you can go join some of these DAOs, meet people, and just kind of like start exposing yourself to the many different facets. Um, I think that's a, a pretty surefire way to uh, 
to achieve some success because it's still really early, right? Like there's still a lot of people who've never heard of DAOs and are just like, why are these crazy people buying, you know, gifts on the internet? Um, but we'll, we'll <laughs> no, get them eventually. We, we definitely will. And, and John, my last question for you is it's always hard for founders to, you know, fire themselves, decentralize the community, give up their baby, you know, for you, I not to put myself in your shoes, but super success has come off the heels of, you know, you and your team's ability to create this, you know, negative brand and, and to know the artists and to put the right artwork out there. Is there any feeling of unease or, or excitement in giving that curation to the community? Because it's, it's definitely where you want to go, but it's definitely a handoff from you and saying, you know, I've done this for so long. I know what works, you know, community go crazy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge change. It's a big step. Uh, you know, it was heavily debated, right? Like, you know, how, like, what should we do? How should we approach this? And I think what makes me the most excited is like, I still think, you know, we haven't necessarily figured out like exactly what the form factor is and like how this, you know, what this looks like in 10 years. And so in my mind, opening it up more like decentralizing the protocol more and the platform enables other community members who have really good ideas to like help, you know, contribute to the direction of where this should go. And it's like, you know, I think it's come a long way and it's mature enough in that we can now, like, if we have more inputs, we can achieve, you know, kind of like greater outputs. And so that's what gets me excited is just like thinking through like, yeah, I don't actually know what, should it just be one of ones or you like, there's all sorts of like interesting dials and knobs to turn. And so um, I'm excited to see how people approach these spaces and like how that kind of influences the the greater platform. No, that, that's a fair point. And I won't talk about it on any platform here, but you know, OpenSea has had incredible success. I won't knock them at all, but they also feel somewhat disconnected from the NFT community a bit in that, you know, and it's all just extra stuff I'm hearing, but you know, you guys are pretty much handing over the keys to the community. So it's it's crazy just to think of the two extremes here and, and how you guys differentiate. Um, and OpenSea is an incredible platform. I love them. It's just a great comparison on two very different strategies, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, also a huge fan. You know, like I uh, purchased many, many axes on OpenSea and things like that. <laughs> um and yeah, I think it's just a different approach, right? It's like, I think you, this ecosystem is still so nascent and like experimenting at both ends, like, you know, uh, is good. The rising tide quote, like, I think there's, you know, just different approaches. It's going to be, you know, net positive for everyone. But yeah, I, I you know. I'm personally biased and very excited about, you know, going the, you know, down the path of decentralization. Um, it's been, you know, in the DNA, you know, I was like, should I go make like a, like a Bitcoin talk forum post about super rare, <laughs> just like for my own personal, you know, cause I think that's cool just to have it just exactly. <laughs> so yeah. Having like starting with the smart contracts and then kind of evolving it to, you know, be something much bigger is, uh, you know, definitely something that's personally very, uh, very exciting for me. And, and sorry, last question for you, John. I know I'm keeping you, but do you ever foresee OpenSea launching a token and doing curation? It just, I don't, I don't see it happening. But w what are your thoughts? Um, if I, so I wouldn't rule it out. I'm not sure. I think kind of like my personal opinion. Like I see what I think would be cool. You know, if you. Know, folks at OpenSea are listening and want my unsolicited advice is just like I, I doubt they listen to my podcast yeah. <laughs> uh, they're certainly not listening to me talk but like them you know like almost being like a Coinbase or something of NFTs where it's like it's you know it's a massive platform it's got a million features they have amazing like custodial like custody being one like I think something like that could be super cool so if I was going to guess, like, I imagine maybe more kind of the, I don't know if Coinbase is the right comparison, but like something like that, you know, and that's going to be a massive business. So like, I'm sure somebody's going to do something like that. And I feel like they'd probably be well positioned. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll find out.
I love that. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's great to hear your story. Um, you've been around a long time. You've made a lot of changes. You took taken a lot of risks. You've handed over the keys of a very important project to the community um, in short time. So, you know, kudos to you and, and I have to see that progress. And uh, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you could visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.